0: Hello and welcome to lecture 11 in Dr. Peterson's short lecture series for his introduction to psychology series. And uh, we're wrapping up uh, our our lecture series on the different approaches and theories in psychology and we're going to wrap up talking about four other areas of psychology that are more contemporary approaches than the previous ones. Um, In lectures 9 and 10, we were talking about the humanistic approach in lecture 10. And really, the humanistic approach, it's still used quite a bit in clinical approaches to gain the relationship with clients. And a lot of its theory also was the predecessor to what's called positive psychology, which we'll talk about later in the course. But positive psychology really took off in about 1999, when a group of psychologists really became dismayed by psychology's focus on the negative aspects of human existence. Um, As I've mentioned before, greater than 50% of psychologists are clinical psychologists which focus on disordered behaviors and problems of human nature. And so the positive psychology movement said, hey, we need to pay attention to what is good about being human. So happiness, joy, uh, performance, all of those things became of interest in 1999. And there's a good argument that the humanistic movement was kind of that start of that and a lot of the theoretical formation in positive psychology can be rooted in the humanistic movement. As I mentioned in lecture 9 with the behaviorist movement, it had its limitations and we found not surprisingly that human beings' behavior is varied. Uh, we're not mice that run mazes or birds that just peck for food. Our behavior repertoire is much broader and just can't be narrowed down as the behaviorist suggested. And so, we had to start bringing the mind back into the study of the psychology and so this brought on one of the, the other camps of thought that we should talk about today, which is the cognitive revolution and the uh, study of the mind once again. with the, But what the behaviorists did give us was methodology and a systematic way of studying the mind. And that is something that the cognitive psychologists will continue to do, is using a more stricter scientific methodology to understand cognition. And in that, since we're on the topic of the cognitive revolution, let's take care of that camp right now. And it's really important to state because in the 1950s and the 1960s, because of the scientific uh, achievements of man with the nuclear age, landing on the moon, advents in mathematics, advents in physics... A lot of sciences and a lot of education assumed that man was a rational being. This became the basis for economics, it became the basis for business, it became the basis for capitalism itself. And there was this assumption that man in all of his decision wisdom was always making a rational decision, and a man who failed to do that was not just was not motivated enough to do what he or she needed to do. And so it even, even the emotion theories that came out during that time assumed that thoughts are what created emotional states. And so a lot of the therapies from that time assumed that if you change your thoughts, you change your emotions. And even today we see some cognitive behavioral therapies that do lend to that notion. And yes, there is some ideas, but it's more of a two-way street as well. One of the things though that what the cognitive revolution is going to show is we're going to test the rationality of man. And what we're gonna find is that human beings are more emotional-driven beings than we are rational-driven beings. Um, And we are more likely to play off emotion than we are to play off critical analysis and decision making. And in fact, the most rational we are during our life, the most analytical we are during our life, is between the ages of 3 months to 12 months of age, uh, which is kind of an interesting idea. That's one where the most statistically calculating will ever be. Uh, But we'll get to that when we get to developmental psychology and we'll look at the study of babies to see how that works out. So cognitive psychology has really shown us a lot about how humans make decisions. And we're not the cold calculating machines that we've always thought we were. And we're not always the rational beings that we've always thought we were. And we'll get to that when we get to cognition and memory. But another important aspect that I should note before we move on is that even when we talk about memory, our memories are based more on emotion than they are based on rational videos of it. In fact, there's not a one-to-one relationship between actual experience and our memory of it. Indeed, our memories are actually based more on the emotions we have today ...than the actual memory and emotions we had the day we experienced said memories. So, with those things in mind, we'll get to that. And we'll talk about things like false memories and all of those types of things when we get to that section. So, behaviorism, cognitive revolution, humanistic theory, positive psychology, and those fields... Humanistic theory, treatment, relationship between client and and therapist. Two other fields uh, that I want to talk about in this final lecture is social psychology and developmental psychology. And I'll start with social psychology. Because social psychology is also tied with another field in psychology, which is personality or what's called uh, individual disposition psychology. And, and in fact, in the American Psychological Association, they're under the same society. But what is social psychology? So social psychology is a study of individuals interacting with their social world. That's the best way to, to kind of give it a quick definition. Um, but its theoretical base is what's called situationalism. And what situationalism is, is the idea that the situation that a person is, is a better predictor of one's behavior than one's own psychology in and of itself. Meaning that you can know everything about the individual, but if you don't know about the social situation you're in, you'll predict their behavior very poorly. Um... And so, and and I think the best way to explain this is research that is done with addiction and prisoners. Um, research I actually did in in with with prisoners and kind of what we did is we had uh, groups who uh, they came to the prison, they went into addiction programming, uh, so they had treatment, and so so the individual had. All of the tools, the individual tools to be clean, to become dry. Uh, they were leaving prison with jobs in place, stability in place, all of those things. But the difference between two groups is one group of, of the, 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 the inmates were, were being placed not from where they came from. So they were doing what's called interstate compacts to different places, not the place where they came from. Other were being released back into the same community that they came from. Okay? And what we found is, is people who were not release, released back into the same social situation had lower recidivism rates... And were much more successful than people who were released into the same social situation. So you had groups of people, same levels of individual treatment, individual knowledge, individual commitment to stop drinking or use of drugs. Same level of resources, but the social situation and environmental situations were the only difference. And we saw huge differences in the groups. And so we will look at that and, and look at the determinants of that when we get to social psychology. And the other important part about social psychology that we've learned with our partners in neuroscience and, and what's called social neuroscience is, is this thing about our human brain. And that is, is that we've always assumed that this large brain us humans have has to do something with our rational mind. And I'm going back to this rational mind thing, right? About being able to make decisions, our language abilities, our mathematical abilities. But what we have found is, is that the areas of the brain that really deal with that are actually very small compared to the social areas of the brain. So I want you to think about this. If you're looking at a piece of paper, just a regular eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, and let's say that's flattened out to represent the area of the brain that deals with the frontal cortex of the area that deals with consciousness, decision making, all of those types of things. If you were to draw a quarter size circle in that piece of paper, that quarter, what fills that quarter, is what deals with mathematics decision-making, rational thought, all of the rest of that piece of paper deals with you thinking about other people and you thinking about yourself interacting with other people. We are social beings. We're so social and we need each other so much that if we isolate ourselves From other people completely our body will actually start to shut down as if it were starving. Kind of interesting to think. We are that social. But we'll get to more of that when we get to the social psychology. The other aspect about social psychology is that subjective experience is also an important part. In a lot of psychology we talk about generalities, about Just you know the average person but in psychology we believe that individual attitude is important individual perspective is important and the individual brings something to a situation and that needs to be analyzed and produced and that brings in our partner psychologists which are called personality or individual individual, uh, psychologists because they study what are called personality factors which is those factors which make you a unique individual compared to the person next to you. And we'll talk a little bit about those that perspective and we'll talk about attitudes and the like when we get to that section. The other very interesting area of psychology that we'll talk about quite a bit in this course is developmental psychology. Usually when we talk about psychology, we're talking about a snapshot in time and And that's it. And so we're talking about somebody in a lab for 15-20 minutes. And we're just getting a snapshot. But developmental psychology talks about change over time. How we develop and change based on our age and where we are in our life cycle. And this is important because, well, because... We have a lot to look forward through through our complete life cycle. It's always been assumed that uh, childhood is the only time that we develop. In fact, a lot of early theories assume that we stop developing at the age of 18. But what developmental psychologists have found is that we develop all the way through the complete life cycle and that we have a lot to look forward to. And we've also found a lot of cool things that happen through the life cycle that show us what really makes us human and what happens when certain things don't occur in our life and we should look out for those I mentioned cognitive psychology which is uh, in in our in our thing starts in the 1960s if you're looking in the uh, the uh, Canvas uh, page. The next one is in the 1980s with the biological approach and the advent of MRI scanning and CAT scanning. Uh, what, what, what really happened in the 1980s and er- a little bit earlier than that as well is, is our ability to see the brain in action and being able to actually see activity in the brain as a person is acting and, and, and producing. And uh, there are a few things that we do need to be warned about, and we'll talk about this when we get to biological psychology, because there's some things we need to be warned about when we're looking at fMRI studies and scanning studies, because there's so much we don't know about the human brain and if someone says oh we're learning so much about the human brain yes we do but we only know probably about five percent of what the human brain does or what its capacity is or what it's doing and I want to really drive that message home not to just complicate things but I think it's important just to stay from the say from the advent in a lot of fMRI studies most neuroscientists can't even agree on which statistics we should be using. In fact, most argue that we need to come up with even new statistical methods to read FMRI studies. Uh, There's reliability issues with FMRI studies where uh, just recently a group of 52 FMRI studies uh, were published for reliability where they take a participant, they scan them at one point with an activity and then bring them back in and scan them again doing the same exact activity and bam! Two different areas of the brain fire. And so we have reliability issues with fMRI studies. We have sample issues with fMRI studies. We also need to talk about things like uh, genetic studies um, and, and their faults. But despite all of the issues and the faults behind MRI and genetic studies that we'll talk about and we need to be aware of, there's a lot of cool things that we're discovering about the human brain that help us understand behavioral and psychological states. And so we'll explore these and we'll find that when we look closer to the brain we find amazing things about uh, human beings and I'll, I'll just give one really really cool example and that's one that deals with intimate love and I just love this series of studies if they are valid they are reliable and they use a good sample size um, and that is most of the theories of love have been based on emotional models. If you look pre-2010, all of them are based on this idea that love is an emotion. uh, That something that should be able to be controlled. Something that we should be able to say when we want and when we don't want and, and all of these things. And if any of you have been in love, you know it's not that simple, right? And we've always wondered why, why, why is passion, Why is our murders a passion when it's just an emotion? Why is there, why can't, why if love is just an emotion do we become so obsessed with our love object? Because it just doesn't make sense if it's just a combination of these different feelings that we have. Well, they started doing some Uh, brain scans in the early 90s and into the 2000s, and they really thought that for sure when you showed pictures of someone's love objects and had them think about them or do different tasks, that what would happen is the emotion centers of the brain, the amygdala area and whatnot, would light up, maybe some dopamine areas. But they were wrong. It's kind of interesting. Brainstem areas are what light up. Brainstem areas that deal with things like heart rate, hunger, thirst, light up when you think about your intimate partner. Think about this. Intimate love is not an emotion. Intimate love is a basic human drive equal to thirst, hunger, breathing, and heartbeat. And we wonder why we thirst it, we thrive for it, we try to protect it, and sometimes it makes us a little crazy. And those are some of the cool things that we have been able to take from the biological psychology findings if we use the tools correctly and we'll talk more about those things when we get to social neuroscience and some of the things we get to look forward to with that being said the next step we need to talk about is the combination approach which is the approach that we'll take from here on out in the class which is to combine these different approaches. So from here out on the class, we're going to talk about the biopsychosocial, which I'll let you read. Um, And then we need to talk about different approaches to understanding human nature because there's limitations to this Western psychological approach that we have been talking about. And you'll see those limitations in the next section of the class when we talk about methodology. Um... But I want you to read the sections on indigenous thought and indigenous psychology, because I think you'll find that that fits the missing pieces of Western thought. With that being said, uh, welcome to the class. I hope you like this introduction to psychology, and I look forward to exploring this field with you.